0: Uh, In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I've spent a lot of time in the city of Philadelphia. Uh, Most of it uh, was really spent getting lost in the city of Philadelphia. If you think Pittsburgh is confusing, Pittsburgh ain't got nothing on Philadelphia. I would get lost all the time, but it led to some very interesting adventures and seeing some very interesting sights I recall one particular instance in which I was walking near what I believe was a Franciscan friary. I'm not sure if it was open anymore, but it was near a very busy street. And I remember there was a donut shop nearby, because I stopped there. And there, was, there were some coffee shops, It was a bus depot. And, uh, and I remember a large and imposing crucifix near the Franciscan friary, largely covered in ivy, like it was being unattended, and there was an inscription underneath the crucifix uh, that anybody could read if they wanted to. And the inscription was a quotation from the first chapter of Lamentations, and it read, Does it mean nothing to you, all you who pass by? Uh, And it was an accusing uh, witness in many ways to the uh, the powerful and enduring truth that is embodied in the person of Christ and the impression it could make upon the passersby. But uh, this is the idea that I wish to communicate today about a public witness that uh, Christianity is by its very nature, a um, public religion. Now, that's not in vogue at all. Everything that I just said is uh, borderline offensive because what's in vogue right now is to understand spirituality as personal and private and deeply so. And uh, so spirituality, uh, which now, by the way, is not such a bad word anymore. Remember, modernism has faded and we're into sort of the hiccup of modernism called postmodernism. And right now it's very in vogue to be spiritually sensitive and aware. So long as you understand spirituality to be a private uh, matter that will hopefully cajole you towards some sort of inner peace or help you to accomplish your life goals. Uh, consider it like espresso. Spirituality is espresso that you need in the morning because you have plans. You have a lot of plans and you need to get them done, but you don't have the wherewithal and willpower to do it. And so you need, uh, you know, a, a three shots of espresso, <laughs> hopefully, three shots of espresso in the morning and not something else uh, to get through. And uh, what I want to say is that the center of Christianity and the center of the Christian message has, um, has really very little to do with your personal inner peace, with, uh, with a lack of existential angst, and with transformation or liberation. We believe in all those things, but they are secondary. The uh, hot-button item, the element of Christian proclamation, has to do with a public Christ that was publicly executed and publicly rose from the dead. That's the object of Christian trust. It may have a myriad of effects upon you and upon me, and those effects may differ, but that's the heart of it. That's the heart of it. So we, we are arranged around a public act of God, a tangible historical resurrection. And, and the apostles all deduced from this action that Christianity uh, has public relevance. And we see the public relevance of Christianity in the 17th chapter of the book of Acts, uh, and I want to talk about three things today, and then I'm done. Uh, Paul's opportunity, what was right in front of him that he was able to pursue for the cause of the gospel. Paul's gut, that is what he felt inside himself when he saw what he saw. And lastly, Paul's method, how he expressed the gospel message publicly. I think if we grapple with these ideas and principles, it will be deeply shaped in how we express uh, Jesus Christ to those around us. So we'll talk about Paul's opportunity first, and I encourage you now to read along with me in uh, the 17th chapter of Acts, beginning at the 16th verse. Paul's opportunity. While Paul was waiting for them, that is his ministerial buddies at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, and he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. I'll stop there. Now, the scene is busy, chaotic, and noisy, not just because of the various personalities involved, but because of the ideas which are in uh, conflict with one another, um, this is uh, metropolitan pluralism at its at its best in a lot of ways. You have people who are gathering with a lot of different ideas because you have jews that 's paul 's clan who are connected and inspired by the Old Testament canon. But you also have um, uh, what are called in this passage devout persons, technically god fearers these are Gentile people who have been converted to the notion of monotheism and they really find Judaism appealing except for circumcision. You know, you can't, well, anyway, there it is. And they don't want to go through that rite, but they have some sense of uh, worship of Israel's God and then you have um, Greek people who have been saturated in the philosophical movements of the day. You have Epicureans. Epicureans are um, French bohemians. That's all you need to know. They're French bohemians. And what I just said was exceptionally funny, and only three people thought it, thought it was. Um, and the French bohemians think that the goal of life is, um, is uh, hakuna matata and, total, uh, and pleasure. That's the goal of life. But you also have the Stoics, and they're another party. Stoics, are uh, are Germans Stoics are German people and and they're engineers. They were engineers in college and their goal uh, and the goal of, of of the Stoics is is right order and balanced portfolios and three square meals and going to bed by 9:30 p.m. I mean these are Stoics and they're all German Greeks and uh, and so you have a lot of chaos going on with the people, but you also have that chaos being brought into. Uh, a uh, 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 further um, depths because of the location. The location brought these people together. I mean, for, this is Athens. It may not be the capital of the empire, that's Rome, but it is the capital of civilization. It's the capital of the arts. It's the capital of the intelligentsia. And in you ha- it's even within that, you have the market, the marketplace where Paul is meeting people every day and talking to them. The marketplace is not like Ikea or the Outlet Mall uh, or the Mall of America. Instead, um, it's it's not about shopping. It's about everything. The marketplace in the ancient world was Everything if you wanted to do anything you went to the marketplace a one commentator said this within the agora the market There were temples law courts state offices public archives libraries, shops concert halls gymnasiums and art galleries Remember they didn't have mass communication mass media if you wanted to know what was going on in the empire or in your country, you would go to the marketplace. If you wanted to know what philosophical ideas were in vogue or in conflict, you would go to the marketplace. And so that's where people are streaming in from all of these different um, epistemological perspectives. They're all coming together. And at the center of the marketplace, you have the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus, consider it Bo- its Boston College. That's all you need to know. It is Boston College's philosophy department. And so these are the, this is the creme de la creme, of society and philosophy. This is where people um, like Sarah Horton hang out. I mean, people that are exceptionally bright and are well versed in the uh, confluence of ideas. And so, th- this is the situation. This is the situation into which Paul speaks. It's a societal hub. It's a societal hub. Um, and, uh, and Paul sees this marketplace. This place of waiting for his friends, not as an inconvenience, but as an opportunity to proclaim the risen Jesus, who is Lord of the market, whether or not the market knows it. And so that's Paul's opportunity. He sees this as a gift, an opportunity to speak something into this crowd, which they have not yet heard. That's the opportunity. And now we have to go to Paul's gut, or what he uh, felt, because this market was lined with a lot of territorial deities. And that's how deity was understood in the ancient world. Little gods had little spheres, little fiefdoms. So you have Zeus, who's the lord of heavens and order. Poseidon, the god of sea and chaos, and they're in balance with one another. You have Demeter, the god of agriculture. You have Ares, the god of war. Uh, Hera, the goddess of families, Aphrodite, very popular, the goddess of love, romantic love, and Bacchus, of course, the god of wine. And so you have a lot of gods that are uh, surrounding the Agora, and little altars, little tables, in front of each of these gods where you could offer a little sacrifice, uh, offer a, a pinch of incense on some burning coals as a way to curry favor with a particular divinity and get a little luck for yourself. And so you could shop and worship at the same time. I mean, it's a marvelous thing. If you've ever been to Baden, Pennsylvania, uh, which is near Sewickley, there is a big sign near Baden on Route 65 that says, Come to Baden. Shop. Worship. And there it is. I mean, that's the, that's the, that's the agora. Shop. Worship. And so you can, uh, you, you can curry favor uh, with your spouse by buying them something nice and with Zeus by offering a little incense. And so, in the midst of this uh, situation and confluence of ideas and divinities, Paul experiences something deep in his gut, and this is what it says. Paul's spirit was provoked provoked when he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, the Greek uh, for provoked is paroxymos, paroxymos. And that's where we get the word paroxysm or seizure. It has to do with having a deep deep feeling. This is what Paul is sensing as he walks into the city. Why? Because he is a Jew raised under the law and raised under the second commandment of the law, which forbids all of it, forbids all the tin little deities that are lining your streets. The the Judaism in which Paul was raised taught that the infinite cannot be condensed. You cannot condense the infinite in a statue and think that you've captured uh, all there is to say about God. And so Paul is deeply provoked because he sees a lot of pylons and marble and tables and statues. And uh, and his provocation is controversial now. Remember that. The, the, the Bible is written uh, to, uh, to comfort as well as provoke. And it's very provocative now because uh, who is he to say? I mean, who is he to say that any religious devotion is sort of illegitimate or missing the mark? And yet... Uh, He has good reason to be provoked, because the language of provocation as it relates to idolatry is the same language used of God in the Old Testament. Whenever God notices that Israel is falling time and time again into what the Old Testament regards as adulterous behavior, cheating on Yahweh with other divinities, God experiences the same sort of inner tumult in his gut. And so Paul, by being provoked, is actually showing his own godliness. And this is what happens with Jesus. You know, when Jesus enters our lives, he brings not only consolations or what the, remember the Beach Boys, good vibrations, not only good vibrations, uh, the Lord also brings within us a new tumult, uh, a new dis-ease with the status quo and with how things are going. God's emotion becomes our emotion. That's how you know the Spirit is working, by the way. When you have a new sense of peace where you didn't experience it before and new inner tumult where you thought everything was fine. And this is what's happening in Paul's gut. But I want you to look um, and see um, what Paul does with this feeling of provocation. His provocation engenders within him a fascinating evangelistic method. It does not make him rage. This is important for those of you, and I'm, I'm gonna, and I'm, I'll, I'll join with you in this. For those of you who get really annoyed and angry, too much. By the way, some people are too opinionated. I want you to hear that some people are too opinionated. They care way too much about way too many things and you need to scale back and start a stamp collection and relax a little bit. Or go to Newfoundland. I mean, really, take a tour. I mean, <laughs> hike. Whatever it takes. Get a good therapist. Uh, but, but too opinionated. Um, uh, and, and, but instead, we have to notice what Paul does. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't rage. He does something brilliant. This is Paul's method. To reach the Athenians, Paul becomes both pastor and prophet. That's what I want to say. He's pastor and he's prophet. He's sensitive And he's totally challenging at the same time. So he's pastor. There are many examples in Acts 17 of how Paul is extremely sensitive to the context of his audience and seeks to build bridges. Did you notice that? I mean, it's genius. Seeks to build bridges. And to a degree that might be regarded as controversial. Let me go through a few of these examples of how he's a pastor. First, Paul never, ever seeks to advance the cause of Christ through force or manipulation. Never. Instead, he seeks to persuade people with words about Jesus. He's involved in the discussion, but he never cajoles people. He's offering words. Second, notice how Paul recalls, retells the story of God. Fascinating. This is Paul whose life was formed in Judaism and the Jewish scriptures, who knows all about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, prophets, covenants, law. And when he recalls the story of God's involvement with the human race, doesn't talk about any of it. Leaves out um, all but the very basics of Old Testament theology. More than that, notice... Paul's inclusive, big-picture language. Notice the times he talks about all, the world, everyone. I'm just going to read uh, some of the key passages here. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands. Verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. Yet he is not far from each one of us. Now, is he? Now, verse 30, he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has a fixed day on which he will judge the world. You notice what he's doing? He's including everybody in the grand story of God, not just Israel, but the whole world. He set the boundaries for Greece. He set the boundaries for Assyria. He set the boundaries for Rome. He's not just the God of the Israelites. He's the God of everybody. So he's retelling the story from a broad scope and a broad perspective. And, uh, and, and doing this to reach his audience who don't know a thing about Moses. That's another aspect of his pastoral ministry. And notice, maybe more controversially, he references pagan literature. Not just pagan literature, pagan religious literature. Gleans theology out of it, and uses it as a missiological point. In him we live and move and have our being. That ain't from Proverbs. And then, for we are indeed his offspring. Two pagan poets, religious poets. Paul uses their theology to bring people to the risen Jesus. And maybe more controversially, he references a pagan altar. This is Judaism. No other altars, no other gods. And he says, well, there's this statue. And there's this altar with an inscription, to the unknown God. And he uses this positively as an entry point to express something about the nature of God found in the risen Jesus. This would have been very controversial. Very controversial. Too much bridge building. Seen as too much compromise. What are you doing? You know, I understand being sensitive too, but we've got to have some limits on this thing. I understand being gracious too, but you, you, at some point, you've got to have some boundaries. St. Paul, haven't you read the book by Cloud? You know, Henry Cloud? I mean, a little boundary. And, and he, he doesn't seem to have many. Um, but this is, uh, this is the pastoral goal for Paul, right? Is that you construct a bridge to the risen Jesus and take away anything that could be regarded as an unnecessary obstacle, blocking people's way. That's the pastoral heart. You build a bridge, you take away the obstacles. Uh, this, is, uh, this is Paul to his core. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul expresses it this way. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Pastor. He's also prophet. prophet. Paul afflicts the deep social tissue of the Athenian world. He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the object of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. And then later in verse 31, and he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, he does something pastoral and prophetic, deeply prophetic. I'll just name a few of the things he does that are prophetic. He points out the religious ignorance of the deeply religious people. He's essentially saying to them, I know you're extremely devout, but you've just got it all wrong. That's all. He also invites the Athenians to abandon their ancient polytheism, uh, the belief in multiple territorial deities. He said, oh, no, 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 there's only one. There's only one God. He also invites the Athenians to abandon idol worship, the notion that deity can be condensed, physicalized, in certain forms. That's no way to worship God, because the God, uh, above all things, made the matter from which you make these deities. So it doesn't make sense to worship it. And then lastly, and maybe most impressively, he redirects their devotion, not just to a single God, but to a God made known in an executed, slaughtered, criminal who had been raised from the dead. That's the most controversial point. Remember, these are Greeks who think that, at least many of them think, that the best thing that could ever happen to you as a mortal being is that you die. Because you will shuffle off this rotting mortal, mortal coil and you will, uh, you will be um, freed from all the limitations of physicality. And so he's, he's giving this message which doesn't really fit into their worldview. Uh, Anglican Bishop Leslie Newbegin was appointed the Bishop of India. And he, uh, at one point, received a a, a tour. He was uh, participating in a tour through a Hindu temple. And in the Hindu temple, you had various gods and goddesses displayed in statue form. Uh, You had uh, Shiva and others. And at one point in the temple, there was a statue of Jesus Christ. The idea is, we like Shiva and we like Jesus. There's room for everybody. And so uh, that was the temple. Now, the the idea for St. Paul is that uh, there's only one, and there's only Jesus, and there's nothing else. And so what Paul is doing is affecting the deep tissue, the deep social tissue of his surroundings, asking people to abandon their assumptions, their worldview, and their whole way of perceiving God and life. That's all. So he's the pastor, and he's the prophet. So that's where Paul is. That's his opportunity. That's his gut, which moves him to employ this method as pastor and prophet. And the result is mixed, as it always is. Some listen, some don't. Okay, so now we fast forward 2,000 years to our own marketplace, because we still have the busy avenues lined with shiny tin gods. They're still around. They're just a little bit better masked these days. I mean, Zeus is still around. Uh, there are people that love to worship order. You know, they're totally devoted to order. They worship. Uh, they worship structure. I mean, some of you live with people who really believe that there's like a perfect way to wash silverware, <laughs> a perfect way to fold napkins, and so everything has to be ordered or structured, or they get mean and crazy. They worship order. There are other people who worship Demeter. That is, they worship the, uh, the god of agriculture. So they worship the vision given to us by Wendell, given to us by Wendell Berry. Now, I like Wendell too, but still. that you, you fantasize about getting rid of all of this stuff and living in a little house, you know, 450 square feet, and you have a shed outside, and that's nice. So it gives you a little extra room. And you, uh, and you think that if you farm, you won't sin. Really. <laughs> there are people that think if you're a farmer, you don't sin anymore. There are people that worship Aries. That is, I know people that love and lust after combat. They love it. They love fighting. They love debating. They love being petulant and childish. Only they would say they're fighting for the cause of righteousness and just expressing their righteous indignation. No, no, no. They have repressed childhood issues that they need to desperately work out. That and a terribly active sinful nature. Um, But that's Aries. They still worship battle. And then there's Hera. This is very popular within uh, the Christian community where we worship the nuclear family. Prim and proper. The nuclear family is the locus of God's activity on earth. And if we could just focus on that family enough, uh, then everything... uh, Some of you would get that. Then we would finally arrive at the right place. And then there's Aphrodite. I mean, this has always been in, friends. Aphrodite has always been in. The worship of lust and love and romance... and and getting lots of sexy advice from Cosmopolitan magazine and BuzzFeed and everything else. And we think that's the missing puzzle piece. If we just had that in life, we'd have have a Jerry Maguire, you complete me sort of phase of existence. That's Aphrodite. And then Bacchus, of course, worshiping the bohemian revel, you know, heroin needles and roach clips and the whole thing. Living it up until we're living on the streets. But, but the tin gods are everywhere, and they have their appeal. They have their appeal because in part they represent, at least most of them, something very good from creation that we have twisted and deified and exalted to a place of horror. And the more we worship those gods, the more we'll become like them, and then we will discover ourselves distanced from the, image in, uh, from the one in whose image we were made. And so idolatry is just torture, it's bad for us, and it will always promise something that it can't deliver. And so how on earth do we interact in the market of ten gods? How do we do it? Well, we might say, I don't have to interact, because the Apostle Paul had certain gifts and certain callings that I don't have. And that is, to a large extent, true. I mean, he had a certain degree of knowledge, and, and uh, he was able to debate and act, and act um, with great credibility in the realm of apologetics, and our gifts may differ from his, but I want to say the principle of pastor and prophet is the same. It's the same. Uh, we as Christians, and this is the principle I want us all to take away, we as Christians wear two name tags in the marketplace. Two name tags. One of them is pastor, one of them is prophet. And I'm, I'm using that language loosely, but you get the point. The pastor label suggests that our goal is to build bridges to the risen Jesus and remove obstacles from people's faith in Christ. The prophetic goal is a little different. It is to proclaim nothing less than the biblical Jesus. Not the Jesus we would remake in our own image, but the actual Jesus, the one reported in the Gospels and the New Testament material. However unsettling that Jesus might be, and he will be, pastor and prophet now here's the hard part based on our personalities our givens and our reactivity to what we experienced a while ago in our lives uh, we as individuals are often more prone toward either the pastoral or the prophetic approach right don't you sense it in yourself leaning in one direction or the other but here's the thing Uh, um, there is a danger in having only a pastoral spirit in having only a pastoral spirit because you can become an accommodationist. You can remove not only the obstacles to the gospel, you can remove the gospel too because you're so terrified that somebody somewhere in the world might be offended that you reduce and reduce and reduce until there's nothing left but the image not of Jesus but of you. Accommodationism. On the other hand, there is danger in having only a prophetic spirit because you just become a boiling pot of vinegar, acidic, combative, ticked off, and you think that's going to lead people to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Really? That, has that ever in the history of the world convinced anybody of anything? That's what happens when we're only prophetic. We don't listen. We don't understand. And therefore, we don't respond the right way. And instead of creating a straight path to Jesus, we make it more jagged and impossible to get there. Because we obscure the friend of sinners. Because we become the enemy of sinners. And there's no family resemblance, and so of course they can't see Jesus. And so what we need is a balance between the two that St. Paul had. A balance between the pastoral and the prophetic, because they will check one another, keep one another in balance. And we see this, of course, in Jesus, who was pastoral, deeply pastoral, never been a pastor like Jesus, who met people where they were and didn't regard them as disgusting even when they were disgusting. Loved them in that place and was also prophetic because he was jarringly candid with all of us about who we were and about what we needed. And at the cross, we see the pastoral and the prophetic perfectly unified. The cross is prophetic because it shows to us the cost of sin and the righteous judgment of Almighty God. Which is unavoidable even if we want to pretend it isn't real but we also see the pastoral heart of god the compassion of god that sees us in our sin and bleeds for us while we are still sinners pastoral and prophetic without the cross all we inherit is a religion of moralism which will kill you or a religion of relativism which will kill you we need both the prophetic and pastoral christ unified fully, and expressed most clearly at his own cross. This is our public religion, friends. The risen Jesus cannot be walled off or cloistered away, for he is the risen Lord of every person in the whole world. Friends, don't be ashamed of this Christ. Don't hide your candle under a dish. Don't let the ivy grow over the public crucifix. Be a winsome, warm witness, prophetic and pastoral, for the sake of the God who loved you unto death